Good morning. Gentlemen, if you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Lauren, could I talk you out of a glass of water? Thank you very much. Matthew 6. Okay. I think you'll find it somewhere in the New Testament. I entitled my talk, Striving for Obscurity. In this, these 18 verses, our Lord warns against doing good for the wrong reason. Notice how he develops his thought. And by the way, it's very, very important that you follow along in your translation because you will not understand the original language. And I read out of the original, so... Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when you do your alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, Enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your heavenly Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head, and wash thy face, 
that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which seeth in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Let's pray. Father, you have taught us again and again through the scriptures that telling is not teaching and listening is not learning, that we can expose ourselves to the great truths of the scriptures and leave unchanged. I beg you that you would not allow that to happen to us this morning, yea, for the whole of the conference, that you'd have your way in our lives, that you would work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. And so we pray that your presence would be sensed in a very real and significant way, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be found acceptable in your sight, and acknowledge our dependence upon you. We also acknowledge that all of the glory belongs to you, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Gentlemen, there are three illustrations that the, our Savior gives in these messages, each dealing with Pharisaic practices. In each case, the right reason for doing it is heavenly reward. The three examples are alms, prayer, fasting. Alms have as their emphasis toward others, prayer, toward God, fasting, toward self. In each of the illustrations, we see a warning, a temporal promise, instruction in doing it properly, followed by an eternal promise. Now, motive or heart attitude is a key component in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In the Old Testament, the only commandments dealing with motive of which I'm aware are love God, honor your parents, and don't covet. With the demise of the theocracy, we notice shift from the corporal to the, te to the, uh, uh, the um, individual, from the temporal to the eternal, from action to motive. And by the time we get into the New Testament, this shift is complete. Now you see beginnings of it in the exilic and the post-exilic prophets. But it's not until you get into the Gospels themselves that you find that this change of emphasis has finally taken place. I remember when I was in school, I had a godly professor who was kind of musing out loud, as it were, to the class. And he said, gentlemen, when you get into the ministry, strive for obscurity. Our Lord Jesus, the last verse of chapter 5 says, be ye therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Here, he gives us a strategy for that perfection. 
He says that as you seek perfection, do it in the context of obscurity. So that as you fulfill these important ingredients in your life, you don't do it for mere show, seeking the approbation of men, but rather that of God. Gentlemen, we play to an audience of one. There is only one individual in the universe that you seek to please. And when you add anyone else to the list, you err to your own hurt. When we seek the acceptance and recognition of others, Jesus says, I promise you, you will lose your eternal reward. So striving for obscurity, says Jesus, becomes a strategy for perfection as he lays it out for us in chapter 5, verse 48. Now, in verse 1, the word for alms in my translation means what God requires, what is right, religious duties or acts of charity. This righteousness consists of godlike acts with a godlike attitude as you more and more conform your life to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, others may benefit, but remember the object of your desire to please must be God. Now, this concept is absolutely huge or strategic in scripture if you let it slip through your fingers you've lost everything we'll talk about it again and again throughout this message but gentlemen God only accepts that which is done for him he will not accept anything you do for any other person only what you do for him the cup of cold water is in Jesus' name, and it is for Jesus' sake. And that has got to burn in the mind that God has given you. Now, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The hypocrite ostensibly tries to obey Jesus, that men may see their good works. They blow their trumpets and pray in public and call attention to themselves. Jesus calls them hypocrites because Jesus says their motive, their motive is not the glory of God, but the glory of self. So such acts are hypocritical, says Jesus, because they pretend to curry the favor of God when in reality they seek the favor of man. Now, gentlemen, since the motive is something that only God knows, I don't even know my own motives. The Bible tells us that I can identify bad motives in my life. I'm incapable of identifying good motives. So I don't know what the motive is as the other man. I have a difficult time figuring out my own motive. But God 
who is able to understand these things knows full well what each of our motives are. And God help us. God help us if our motives are wrong. Note that in this verse, Jesus does not say heavenly reward. But it seems, from my perspective, that this is what he has in mind for the following reasons. Number one, because he contrasts it with the reward that the Pharisees get, which is here on earth. Verily, they have their reward. Number two, because he introduces rewards for the first time in chapter 5 and verse 12, and he says, great is your reward in heaven. And finally, in the next verses, that is, those following the message, or the passage we're looking at this morning, he says in 19 and 20, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but rather lay them up in heaven where that cannot happen. So in these verses, Jesus is telling us how we can accrue to ourselves eternal gain. And note, in these words, Jesus says that it is possible for a person to lose his reward in heaven. Now, Jesus assumes in these verses that you don't want that to happen. He assumes that you want to accrue gain. So this word reward if I count it correctly, appears nine times in the Sermon on the Mount. But he uses other words as well, like treasure. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Thus, our Lord Jesus seems to shatter in these passages the philosophical underpinnings of that philosophy which says that you do things solely for the sake of good, not desiring to accrue any particular gain for yourself. The philosopher calls it altruism. And nobody is altruistic. And parenthetically, this won't cost you a nickel more. That's the reason why communism fails so miserably in the world. Men will not work as hard for what they cannot keep as they will for what they can keep. And you and I know that our federal government works very hard at trying to figure out where that line is. To take as much of your money as they can without destroying your incentive for work. Like I said, that didn't cost you another cent. But in the final analysis, gentlemen, Jesus asks the question, from what source do you wish credit to accrue to you? From men or from God? Choice is yours. Now, I'll come up for air there and ask if you have any questions or comments. Yes. Um, are you saying that man is uh, created this way by the will of God, 
that uh, we we desire reward. That's what I'm saying. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The desire for gain, the desire for profit, the profit motive is not part of the fall. It's part of being created in the image of God. Scott? Are you saying that the difference between uh, Matthew 5.16 and what's being said in, in chapter 6 is also motive? Exactly. Okay. That's exactly what I'm saying. Maybe wrong, but that's what I'm suggesting. Yes. Are you Mike? saying uh, that the uh, that for a man it is important to look at the uh, negative motivations in our life because Scripture talks about them, as you referenced, but the positive motivations are imponderable, therefore don't waste your time on it? I don't know if I would go that far. I'm simply suggesting to you, my own personal experience is, I don't think I've ever had a pure motive in my life. Now, I freely admit that one may have snuck up and left before I realized it was there. <laughs> but other than that, I'm not sure I've ever had one. Now, if God says to me in eternity, Henriksen, you did have, there weren't very many of them, but you had a few. I say, Phew, that's awfully kind of you, God. But I don't anticipate that. Yes. Could you expand a little bit more on how the desire for gain is part of being created in the image of God and not part of the fall? Well, God does nothing apart from a desire for gain. As a matter of fact, he says, I'm a jealous God. I will share my glory with no one. He calls himself, as one of his names in the Old Testament, is jealousy. So the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. Everything that God does is to draw attention to how great he is. And so he says, I want all the credit, all the glory to come to me. And like I said, God help you if you want to take a little bit for yourself. But that's how he made you. And so he encourages it in the Bible. He does not discourage it. The whole Sermon on the Mount is an encouragement to seek gain. Are we together? If it was wrong, he would never have encouraged it. Well, it appears that these, what Jesus is giving us here, are boundaries to help us. Um, keep bad motives at bay, not necessarily things that help produce good motives. Would that be correct? Correct. And therefore, as I suggest in the title, your best strategy is obscurity. Okay? Yes. Charles? Well, would you say the, would you agree with that the essence of the gain we're seeking is ultimately God himself, the glory of God himself, sharing in that, participating in that. Charles. There's, there's an invisible light there.
See if I can remember what I was going to say. <laughs> Charles, a um, what a man considers to be gain is a reflection of his value system. So, one person spends hours and hours and hours in voice lessons, hoping that they'll be able to become part of the Metropolitan Opera. Because they say, now that's real gain. A lot of the men sitting in this room work very, very hard because they'd like to be able to make at least a million dollars a year. They consider that gain. So what a man considers gain is what motivates him in that direction. So if you say to me, what I consider to be gain is God, fine. All I'm saying to you is that you will put your efforts in the direction of what you perceive to be of profit to you. Okay, verses 2 through 4. Now, gentlemen, most religions acknowledge the importance of almsgiving. Interestingly, Jesus does not call attention here to the need for the giver to get involved in the life of the recipient. He just simply says, you better give. Nor does he say whether or not the recipient is worthy of the gift. Also note, Jesus does not say when. Excuse me, he does say when. He does not say if. He assumes that you will give. This is simply a matter of how you're going to go about doing it. So, again, let me emphasize to you. In this sermon, Jesus assumes that everyone is generous and everyone is motivated by profit. Now, those who give alms in the manner of the Pharisees, they get their reward, but they lose the favor of God. Now, Christ's teaching makes theatrical worship and religion odious. But still, even to the present time, people participate and practice it. Now, notice that Jesus does not condemn the hypocrites here. No law has been broken. They merely forfeit any gain or reward that they hope to accrue from God. That's all. They're hypocrites because they profess to do it to the glory of God, when in reality they're doing it to the glory of man. Now note here, secular philanthropists are not hypocrites. Because they don't pretend to do it to the glory of God. They freely admit they're doing it to the glory of self. I remember I had spent a number of years living in Michigan, and there was, a, there was a town called Muskegon, Michigan. And in the town, there was a 
Handley Hospital and a um, Handley Public Library and a Handley Public School. And I don't know this for fact, but I was told that Mr. Handley came to the city fathers and said, I'll give you all of my wealth if you name the town after me. And of course, they didn't do it. See, he's not a hypocrite. He freely admits that he wants all the gain to accrue to himself. The only person who is the hypocrite is the one who says, I'm doing it for God, when that, in fact, is not the case. Interestingly, interestingly, the recipients of such giving often are more than happy to praise the giver, exacerbating the problem. It seems to me that it's impossible for the recipient of the gift to show gratitude without tempting the giver in this regard. Now, gentlemen, in my whole adult life, I have lived off of the generosity of others. And I've wrestled with this. I've wrestled with it for years and years. Is it wrong for a church to name a wing one of the buildings after a donor in gratitude for what they have done. And I don't know the answer to it. It seems to me the motive is key. Men, if you receive no thanks from the person to whom you give, and your concern is for that individual because he's manifesting a thankless heart, And you go to him because you love him and desire the well-being of his soul. I would say probably, probably you're all right. But if you find yourself exercised down deep inside for any other reason, I caution you to be very careful. This passage seems to suggest that God's people should avoid any connection between the gift and the giver. That's why he says in verse 3 and 4, when you do your alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand does, that your alms may be done in secret, and your father which sees in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Now the word openly is not in a lot of the translations. We may accrue life, a reward in this life, but surely, for sure, it is in the life to come. So when Jesus says that God will reward you, he means that we do it for the profit God offers rather than the profit that the world offers. It's as simple as that. It depends on whose profit you value the most. Now, let me note with you, just by a side here, that most Christians wrestle with to whom they should give. I'm suggesting to you this morning, that's the wrong question. The question is, why do you give what you give? And if you're going to get along with God, the answer is, you give to whom you give 
for one reason only, and that is because you are his obedient servant, and that's what he wants. And for that reason, you expect no thanks. You're simply doing that which was your duty to do. Any comments or questions on this before we go to prayer? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I have a little different perspective on this. And Great. And it comes out of my business world. And it's that, and I have a little saying that says, no good deed shall go unpunished. <laughs> and, uh, you know, regardless of whether I help a, a, a widow lady put a roof on her house, um, my, my perspective over my life has been that when I do something like this, invariably it comes back to bite me. And so I just go into it knowing that if, if I come out uh, with no extra thrown on me, it's, a, you know, what's, you know, fine. But nine times out of ten, I wind up doing ten more things. So I just go, in, I mean, I'm not, I'm just looking to minimize uh, rather than uh, the other thing. So I, I see a little, in, in my, even with my coworkers, when they come ask for help, I mean, I know I'm stepping into a trap, but I do it because of my, you know, where I'm coming from as a believer in Christ, knowing that I'm gonna, I could get stabbed in the back and everything else because I am trying to help. So I don't see, in my perspective, or it's rare that I get a reward anywhere in this thing. It's just minimizing the amount of damage I'm going to receive. Okay. Good. Yes. Could you make a comment on how you look at interpreting not knowing what your left, your left hand knowing what your right hand is doing? Are you interpreting that figuratively? The best interpretation that I can give you, excuse me, is, I was close, is verse 4. You do it in secret. Apart from that, I can't help you. So it's a figurative expression that's communicating that idea or that concept. That's my sense of the matter, yes. Yes. Could this explain, then, the sacrifices that Cain and Abel made on its surface when you read uh, those sacrifices, you wonder what problem God had with the sacrifice because they look they look similar, they look the same, but it was the motive for which they were. The Bible doesn't comment on what exactly goes on in that interaction, except that God says to Cain, "You know the problem." I don't have to tell you what it is. Fix it, and everything's going to be all right. So whatever it is, it was a fixable problem for Cain. Yes. Although there's a question here, yeah. Uh, on chapter 4, these rewards could be on earth. They're not, it's not, it's not reward in heaven only. It could be you get rewarded for your 
obscurity. I I I didn't I guess I didn't see it as uh as obscure between the, the the motivation for giving the gift maybe as as you had mentioned. Uh I I think that if you if your motive and heart is right when you give that gift, uh if you have any inclination to receive any type of accolade whatsoever, it's pretty clear cut that your motive is suspect, and I, I think. And, and the other, the other thing I wanted you to ask you was, you made the comment, if I heard you right, that uh, everyone is motivated by profit. And I was, my question to you is, is which verse do you point to for that? Okay. Let me take the first first, and that is, you can apply this any way you want to apply it. Jesus said, do it in secret. Now, whatever reward you hope to accrue on this life from doing it in secret, be my guest. But it's obvious that what Jesus is saying here is you do it for God. Now, the second question is profit. The whole sermon assumes that you want profit and God encourages you in the direction of your desire for profit. That's why he says in verses 19 and 20 of the same chapter, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth because moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But rather lay it up in heaven because that is an eternal account, a deferred compensation program, if you would, that will not rot and decay and people will not steal it. Back here. Mike? Walt, uh, how do you run Matthew 5.16 through this line of thinking? Let your light shine before men. Yes. Yeah, I've wrestled with that myself. The best I could come up with is that the recipient of the gift, because he or she has the finished idea where it comes from, says, God, you truly have been good to me. Yes, Scott. So I, mean, I might be a little slow on this, but um, would my motive for seeking gain, wrongly seeking accolades for, say, giving alms, is that mutually exclusive with my receiving rewards in heaven? Yes. He says, it's fine. I'm, I'm not going to argue with you about it. He says, I'm not going to call you a sinner over it. There's no law broken. But just understand... I accept nothing that is not done for me. Seems like that there are times when one is led to give, or at least in my experience, 
that I do believe that I'm being led by God to give, and I know full well that I'm going to get some accolade for it. Um, that's a tough one. Right. Where do you go with that other I, than on your knees? And when the accolades come pouring out in your direction, you apologize for God to God and say, God, do not hold me accountable for this. As you seek to be gracious to the individual who does it. Again, that's the best I can do with it. Yes, Michael. Like, uh, a lot of the giving we do has to do with uh, an agency arrangement where somebody has to handle it and and isn't part of this uh, motivation expressed through a stewardship of communicating with them around expectations, around who's going to know, and making sure you get some assurances. Now, if they blow that, then, then you've got – that's another thing you deal with. But it's – you work on obscurity with them. Yeah. You and I know, Mike, that um, businessmen can easily set up those little 501c3 tax-exempt accounts. They do them for a variety of reasons, which include such things as, number one, they have a windfall. They don't want to pay tax on it, but they don't know what they want to do with it now, so they dump it in there and decide later. Number two, it affords them an opportunity to obey Jesus in that it, they can do it and still maintain obscurity. Number three, it, it means then that the recipient doesn't dun them for more money because they don't know where it came from. And so I don't know what all goes on in the mind of the guy who does that. But the government certainly encourages the availability of those kind of vehicles for the individual who wants to use them. But you being a tax man know that better than I. There's a question over here. Yes. You started to talk right before you started taking questions on this last segment, the why. Decide where you're going to give based on why you're going to give. Could you expound on that a little bit? And I'm sure most of us in the room here are flooded with all kinds of requests for contributions, and how do you possibly discern among all the good requests? I cannot help you there. It's just simply I'm saying, I was saying to you that the reason you give is because you're the obedient servant of Jesus, not because the need exists. Because as you already said, the needs are legion. But it complicates matters because around verse 42, I think it is, in chapter 5, he says, Give to him that ask of thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. So, let's go on. <laughs> Prayer. Prayer forms the essence of our relationship with God. To be without prayer 
It's to be without a relationship with God. So he says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Now, it doesn't seem to me that Jesus is warning against public prayer so much as he's warning against prayer that has as his goal the reputation for piety. I have to, I have to be honest with you, gentlemen. I am I'm uncomfortable saying grace at a table in public. Why am I doing that? This is, I'm just talking about my, to me, not you, for me. Now, why do I do that? God knows I've got a grateful heart. I can thank God for the meal as I'm eating it. There's nothing I know of in Scripture that commands that I pray before a meal. I think it's a lovely tradition. But why do I do it? Why do I do it? So Jesus says, when you pray, enter into the closet. Close the door. Make sure it's just between you and God. Now again, I, I want to just tell you where I live. I have to confess to you that of all of the disciplines of the Christian life, prayer appears, knowing that word appears, to be the least profitable. Least profitable. There's not much profit in it as far as I can see. I pray for this and nothing happens. I don't pray for this, and it does happen. I think to myself, boy, I wish I had prayed for that. That would have been a great prayer request answer. <laughs> James chapter 5, verses, I think, around 17 and 18 says, Elijah was a man subject to like passions such as we, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not in the space of, on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the earth brought forth rain. So the Bible teaches us that there is a connection between your prayer and God responding. I have to say to you, I don't see all that much of it. But Jesus singles it out as a source of great eternal profit. Interesting, isn't it? Therefore, I do it, says Jesus, because it profits me. I do it because it profits me. Let me illustrate for you. Here's a missionary, Joe Schmatz. He lives on the other side of the world. You know Joe, and Joe's got cancer. So you go into your closet, and you pray fervently for the healing of Joe Schmatz. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and Joe Schmatz dies. Where's your reward? Answered prayer, Joe's dead. Jesus says, in heaven, it accrues to your gain, your benefit. Now, gentlemen, God will not do for a man what he can do for himself. He'll only do for you what you cannot do for yourself. In intercessory prayer, you demonstrate your dependence upon God in that you pray for that which you cannot do for yourself. Interesting. 
In verses 5 and 6, Jesus warns against trying to impress others. In verses 7 and 8, he warns against trying to impress God. Don't try to impress me with your prayers, he says. Don't use vain repetition. The heathens do that. Don't you do that. Understand that I know what you need before you ask it. So I ask myself, is liturgy and confessional churches and the rosary and the Roman Catholic Church, are these violations of verses 7 and 8? Our tongues in the charismatic churches a violation of this. The guy speaking in tongues, he has the finished idea of what he's saying himself. Is that not vain babbling? I don't know. I don't know. All I can say is, you're wise in being careful. Interesting. Pagans ask of those who do not exist. We ask of him who not only exists, but understands before we ask what it is we need. So I ask myself, if that's the case, then why ask? Answer? Because Jesus tells me to. Because it is good for me to register before God my dependence. It's a reminder for me that I can't do it myself. So we do it because Jesus asks us to do it. And he says it makes a difference. How the difference? I don't know. Because to be honest with you, gentlemen, I don't want to talk God into doing what he does not want to do. I look back on my life, and I am thankful to God for a lot of things, but there are few things for which I am more grateful than the fact that God has not answered my prayer in the way I wanted it. I look back, and if God gave me everything I asked for, mercy. David, how does um, this in the closet praying fit in with pray continually in First Thessalonians, pray without ceasing? Yeah. I would say, David, that the closet, again, is a figure of speech. I don't think there's got to be a closet before God will hear your prayer. I think what he's saying is it's between you and God. Nobody needs to know about it. And so when Paul says, pray without ceasing, I think what he's saying is you take all of life's input and you turn it vertically to God in prayer. Interesting. I asked my 10-year-old grandson whether he does that. He didn't have the finished idea of what I was talking about. If I ask you guys, do you do that? Do you massage the discipline of taking all of life's influence, all of life's input, all of your sensory data, and turning it vertically in prayer? I'm not asking you whether you bat a thousand on it. I'm asking you, do you work at 
that discipline in your life? Or are you like my grandson? You have no idea what I'm talking about. Yes, uh, Jack? Any difference between silent prayer in your head and prayers out loud? One's in the closet and one is not. Other than the fact you can pray out loud when nobody's around. But I see no difference in that regard. Do you? Not to get distracted, but I've wondered in my silent prayers if only God hears those, and with my verbal prayers if Satan hears those. That's a good question. I've never thought about it before. Well, I probably won't again. <laughs> no, 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 you misunderstand me. I will think about it. Well, yes, God. Is there any uh, command to public prayer? None that I'm aware of. None that I'm aware of. But that doesn't mean they're wrong. Hey, Walt, over here. Yes, <laughs> Hiding in the corner. Um, how, how do you explain the difference between, I think it was in Luke 11, where the woman was coming before the judge and praying can repetitively about the same thing until she wore the judge down. Yeah. And and then the other thing that we see we as Christians seem to do is uh, seek to uh, kind of command husbands to pray with their wives, which is not praying in the closet. Yeah. How do we handle that? Thanks. First of all, I'll take the second before the first, and I say to you. And I know of no passage in the scripture that says that I've got to pray with my wife. I think it's a good idea, however. Would the motives, would the motives then come into play as to why you're doing it? Or? Of course, yeah. And it's the second one, whatever, whatever interpretation you give to that difficult parable, underline the word difficult, do not deceive yourself into believing that God wants you to leverage him into doing what he does not want to do. Yes, Brad. In the context of Acts 2.42, um, there it says uh, they were continually devoting themselves to apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And it seemed like that was a corporate event that is a model for us, not necessarily a command, but something it seems like we should follow. Right. It's a good observation. I would affirm that and simply remind you that examples are not normative. If they were, none of us would be married. But they do affirm our right to do these things. So there's no command for public prayer, but there certainly is precedent. Yes? I have a question. When you're saying that um, and, and I can't re remember the exact words you said, but forcing God into doing something that he doesn't want to do. Trying to. Trying to. Well, I don't believe God is going to do what he's not going to exactly. want to do. Exactly. So don't so, try. 
Okay. But be careful here, be careful here, because they soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, mm -hmm. but sent leanness to their souls. And you beg God long enough, God may say, okay, Gordon, it's yours. Mm -hmm. And you'll live in regret. I understand what you're saying. I just approached the way you said it. Yeah. I didn't just, I disagreed with. Yes. Well, you, you said we pray for those things that are beyond our control, which, okay. But then, you know, a lot of people espouse God doesn't help those who can help themselves, that sort of idea. But that kind of smacks of self-sufficiency. How did... I, I hesitate to go there. I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, this morning I had a lovely breakfast downstairs, and I looked at the breakfast and I said to myself, "God, get that food into my stomach for me." And it just didn't work. God says, "You get it in there. I provided it for you, but you get it in there." That's what I had in mind. But a lot of us would take that to a great extreme, and some people would uh, live by that dogma. And I would say, good luck. Yeah. That's about all you can say. Okay. Let's go on. Oh, yeah. Scott? Looking at uh, going back to giving for a second, if we can. For uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 roughly on to the end of nine he says um each one must do just as he is purpose in his heart not grudgingly under compulsion for god loves a cheerful giver i've heard that spoken of that so if you don't have the right heart then don't give would you agree or would you say give and ask forgiveness if your heart's not right the latter okay yeah i cannot know my motive scott but i can know what is right and I can do right and say, God, forgive me and help me with my motives. Real, real quick, one more thing on uh, doing what, wouldn't you say that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing? And so that would pretty much mean anything, any desire to love or do anything other than physical getting up and walking over to point A. Yeah, and even that would fall on, even then even there. is a gift yeah. from God. So if you want to be really literal, yeah, I, I trust God to get the food into my stomach. All right, let's go on. I'll pick it up in a, a few moments here. I'm afraid that if we don't uh, bail some hay, we're going to run out of time in the, uh, well, in verses 9 to 13, we have the Lord's Prayer. That is a rich sermon in and of itself. We haven't got time for it. I'm going to pass over it. I want to pick up verses 14 and 15. But I want to call to your attention that in verse 12 he says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then he circles back. And in verses 14 and 15 he says, I want to go some, over something more with you. Understand that if you forgive, I will forgive you. But if you do not forgive, 
I will not forgive you. So I ask myself, why did Jesus do that? He didn't do that with any other segment of his prayer. Why does he do that in this? I would suggest five reasons for your consideration. There may be 25, but here's the five I would consider. Forgiveness, this truth of forgiveness is fundamental to all relationships with God. As taught in the parable on forgiveness as well in Matthew 18. Now, gentlemen, this may be the only condition for salvation given by Jesus in the Gospels. Because he says, and he says it in 1835, I solemnly warn you that if you do not forgive others, when you and I meet, I'm not going to forgive you. Number two, because of providence, all negative circumstances have their origin in God. Now what that means is there is no such thing as another person hurting you. Ultimately, your problem is always with God. For God says in Hebrews chapter 13, The Lord is my helper. Therefore, I will not fear what man can do to me. Nobody can touch you except God wants you touched. Therefore, to be angry at another individual is to be angry at the wrong person. Job understood that clearly. In the book of Job, whatever else you say about Job, Job says, God, the problem's not between me and Satan. It's not between me and the Chaldeans or the Sabaeans or the weather. My problem's with you. And God said, you are right, Job. You may be wrong on a lot of things, but you're right on that one. The problem is between the two of us. I did this to you. Number three, tied with the Lord's Prayer, if you want your prayers to be effectual, you must, says Jesus, forgive. Number four, it forms the basis of all relationships. If you cannot forgive, you cannot have relationships with other people. Why? Because we're all sinners. And if you break relationships with me every time you sin, or I sin, I'll have no friends. I need your forgiveness. Number five, it forces us to look to God alone for justice. Now, any other questions or comments on prayer before we go to fasting? I'll entertain your question if you had it. Well, I was just I just wanted to point out one thing. There is no scripture uh, that, that indicates that God helps those who help themselves. Uh, or no one has, has ever pointed it out to me. I would uh, agree. Se- secondly, I think in an effort to keep yourself in a humble mode, uh, while I don't think anyone will admit to batting a thousand on the, you know, constantly praying, I think that you, one has to guard himself. To, you want to keep praying about everything, 
and how you treat others in certain situations, whether there's profit in it or not, so that you know the righteous way of dealing with other men and women. Uh, if you don't, you run the risk of becoming a self-sufficient 911 Christian who says, I'll deal with everything, but God in those, when dear Aunt Bessie has cancer, oh, can't affect that one. So, okay, hadn't talked to you in a year and a half, so now I'm going to pray to you. Prayer is a means by which we can communicate with the Creator. It is a gift that He gave us, and I think there is nothing so small that we can't take to the Lord. Yeah, no problem with that. So far, um, so far, the theme of obscurity is manifesting itself in uh, in prayer in the dark, giving left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing. I want to go back to the the first and the giving. Um, it's been my experience that sometimes a part of the giving is less the alm and much more the encouragement, and that the encouragement seems to be attached to, geez, I'm glad that you're with me in this endeavor. And um, so is that just mixing two things which might be okay to do, to acknowledge? In other words, to give it so the person knows that what you're doing is as much an expression of, of being with him as it is otherwise. You understand. Yeah, TJ, I... I have no ability to comment on that. My, my comment is on the scripture. And the scripture says, let your giving be done in secret. Now how a man handles that, or how he wants to finesse that in his interpersonal relationship, I, I'm not in a position to comment. My purpose this morning is to simply spell out the obvious out of this passage. And Jesus says, when you give, do it in secret. And so I'm just, that's, I can't tell you anything more than that. I, I will certainly not say to you that what you've said is wrong. But that's not what Jesus said it, here. It seems to be if you say as a bottom line that give in secret, then you better figure out another way to encourage and then give in secret. And I'd say that's between you and Jesus. Because my, my objective this morning is just simply to spell out the obvious. Yes. Uh, when we're talking about giving, are we talking of monetary or is it of anything? Because when I give of myself, it's kind of hard to give of myself in secret. Yeah, the word is alms. Okay, so it's just a monetary issue that we're talking about there as far as giving. Yeah. Okay. Gail, go ahead. <laughs> I'd like for you to broach uh, the subject. They're letting you off the hook, and I don't want you to get off the hook. This is not to trap you, but in John 5, 24, he says, Most assuredly, you know the verse, uh, he who hears my words and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life. But you just made the declaration that the only condition for salvation is forgiveness. Now, how do I get those two verses together? Quote John 5, 24 for us again, please. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has the everlasting life. Yeah, okay. 
Gail, how would you define the word believe? Here's my word in believes. I'm sorry, Walt, this wasn't for you to quiz me. <laughs> This is questions and answers. I ask the question. <laughs> I believe is uh, is the word faith, and it's the verb for faith. Yeah. It is putting into action what you what you know is true. Yeah, putting into action what Jesus said. So I say part of believing is forgiving. Now, not forgive is to call Jesus a liar. And Jesus doesn't take kindly to that. Well, I don't think I was calling him a liar exactly. <laughs> I just, the guy I challenged was you. I didn't challenge Jesus. So. <laughs> don't drag me into that stuff. <laughs> Yes. Walt, I'm, I'm still a little uh, confused on this corporate prayer. When, you, when you're discipling a man and you pray with him, or if you call some brothers together to pray for the salvation of others, are you suggesting that there perhaps is no eternal reward to that activity? No. I'm not suggesting that at all. With that. Well, I think what I'm suggesting, Mark, is that... You're doing it for one reason only. Not two reasons or three. One reason only. And that is because you are the obedient servant of Jesus. And you are seeking his will. And you have come to the conclusion that what it is you're doing there is his perfect will. You're not doing it for any other purpose. When you do it for other purposes, Jesus says you forfeit any pleasure I will derive from it. Let's go on. Yeah, okay. Dave? Back to that comment you made on no command in Scripture to pray with your wife. None that I'm aware of. I would, I'd never be so foolish as to say it doesn't exist. Go ahead. Tell me where it is. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you what I know, what it says about your wife. And it says in Ephesians that the two will become one flesh. Can you take your wife into the closet in this chapter 6 verse? And David, if you're asking me, if I pray with my wife, the answer is yes. And it be in secret. I'm saying to you... I don't know of any per, any command in Scripture that you must pray with your wife. Is this chapter 6, verse a command to go into the closet and pray in secret? Jesus, in this material, as far as I can understand it, is not giving commands. He's just explaining the way things are. He's saying... I know you're motivated by profit. Nobody, 
nobody does anything except for profit. You've got to decide what profit you want. The profit that you can get on the horizontal or the profit you can get on the vertical. Dealer's choice. He didn't say that the hypocrites had broken any law. He says, they've got their reward. They're not going to get any from me. Let's go on. Verses 16 to 18 is the third of the three illustrations dealing with proper conduct in the Christian disciplines, namely fasting. By way of review, note the following about all three illustrations that Jesus gives. All three deal with not making those disciplines that are private public. Number two... All three deal with motive and have as their objective a desire to please God. All can be done in private. Therefore, you are at risk when you take them public. All apply to both the Old and the New Testament. All must be done solely to please God. Note also that Jesus anticipates the New Testament in this sermon in that he does not include issues like sacrifice and circumcision. And not only that, he makes no mention here of the importance of believers gathering in his name. Now, I know of no New Testament command to the effect that I've got to fast. There are commands to the effect that I must pray and I must give, but not fast. There is in the Old Testament, however. You remember that in Leviticus chapter 16, that when they have the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, that the people are commanded to fast. But gentlemen, the overall tone of Scripture, plus the testimony of his saints, indicates that fasting can become a wonderful spiritual experience. Now again, I have to confess to you, in all honesty and candor, that I have fasted on a number of occasions in my life and none of them have proved to be satisfactory. It tells you a lot more about me than it does about fasting. Now, the hypocrisy found in fasting is an expression of the flesh, the very thing that fasting endeavors to suppress or kill. As is so often the case, those things which God gives us for our own good, we pollute and corrupt in such a way that they turn out to be a detriment. For me, in my endeavor to kill my fleshly appetites through, through fasting, I find that all I do is call attention to them. I've got a brother in San Diego who fasted 40 days and nights. He tells me that somewhere in the second week or so, the desire for food begins to disappear. 
I've never gone that long. So the amount of fasting I have done, instead of concentrating on Jesus, I'm concentrating on my belly. Now, I, I, I'm ashamed and embarrassed to tell you this, guys, but it's the truth. And I'd be way out of bounds if I stood here before you and said that it were otherwise. Nevertheless, Jesus here tells us it's a good thing to do. In verse 11, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Here, in an act of sacrificial love, his follower refuses to partake. Not unlike David, when he refused to drink the water drawn from the well of Bethlehem. So he says in verse 17, when you fast, he assumes that you will fast. Still, it's short of a command. It's optional. So, if you fast, three things. Understand that you shouldn't be telling other people all about it. Number two, that there is eternal benefit to it. And number three, contrary to my own experience, if you're not fasting, you probably should know more about it. Now, gentlemen, a warning here. Your quest for perfection, says Jesus, Matthew 5, 48, can easily slip into hypocrisy. Don't let that happen to you. When you covet eternal reward, you walk by faith and delight the heart of God. But when you allow your motives to slip into calling attention to who you are before other people, all of that gain slips into the sand. So, I remember somebody once saying, and I close with this, show when you're tempted to hide and hide when you're tempted to show. Any questions or comments? Would you just repeat the six things that all three illustrations had in common that you listed? Yes. I can find them here in my notes. Yes. All three deal with not making those disciplines that are private public. Number two, all three deal with motive and have as their objective the pleasing of God. Number three, all can be done in private. Therefore, you're at risk whenever you take them public. Four, all apply both to the Old and New Testament. Next, all must be done solely for the purposes of pleasing God. And then I added two others, that he anticipates the New Testament in that, he doesn't, in his sermon, include things like circumcision and sacrifice. And finally, he makes no mention 
of the importance of gathering together as believers. Yeah, I desperately want to know that my motives are good. And what I hear is the best I can hope for is the lack of any condemnation of my conscience, which would mean that the best of all environments that I can have is not even thinking about my motives. Um, Would you agree with that? Do I agree with that? For me personally, maybe you're different from me in this, but for me personally, motives never become an issue until my conscience tells me I'm wrong. I think that's what I'm saying, that if your conscience is not condemning you, the best of all environments is when you're doing something and you're not thinking about why you're doing it. In truth, that means that you wouldn't be doing it for, hopefully, a selfish reason. Hopefully. I'm knowing that word, Hopefully. That faith thing is hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to. It's that fine edge of faith because we have to walk on that, that our motives are good, because only he knows. Yeah. Well, yes. The acts of heroism during wartime, emergencies, 9-11, the fireman who ran didn't think. His, his motives uh, are, are, are pretty well understood. Uh, it's very hard to anticipate running into a, a burning building thinking about how you look in the newsreel. Uh, it's, uh, there, are, there are some motives that are just instinctive and people come to the rescue. Maybe. That's between that man and God. I have no way of commenting on that. Yes. To 18, that uh, Jesus assumes that we will fast, but yet there's not a command. That's what I said, yes. So my question is, why would we fast if there's not a command? Because Jesus says you accrue eternal reward for it. That's why. Just one more, one more question along those lines. Is there anything else that we find uh, in Jesus' teaching that is not a command, but we find eternal rewards for? Something that would come alongside that? You're asking me a question I've never explored in my own mind, so I have to throw it up to the audience. Any of you guys can help him on that. I've, my mind's never gone in that direction. The question was, um, is there anything else we find in, from Jesus' teaching that uh, is not a command, but we will have eternal reward? Because uh, that question comes from, it seems like everything else we find eternal reward from is a command straight from Jesus. I would not be surprised if there aren't some. I just, I've never thought about it, so I can't help you. Is fasting always directly related to food, or could it be other things, do you think? In your, in your, is there other things you could fast from and still have the same result? Biblically, 
I think it has to do with the taking in of nourishment. The Pharisees fasted every Thursday and Monday, ostensibly the days that Moses ascended and descended Mount Sinai. So it was a common practice in Jesus' day. One more question. We have to call it off. Yes. Oh, well, I had a question about if, if we're always supposed to question our motives, how do you prevent yourself from going into a paralyzing inactivity because you question, you question your motive? You can, in theory, do that forever. Correct. So how do you prevent yourself from being paralyzed by inactivity? Well, like I had said earlier, Ralph, I, I cannot know that i got a pure motive, but I can identify right. And I can do what is right. And say, God, help me with my motive. I can do that. Well, gentlemen, time is up. I want the record to show that I ended on time. <laughs>